Tonight we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 2 and continue on our origin series. And so I'm going to read the passage, pray, and then we'll dive in. So Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 is where we'll start. And it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Lord, I pray that you would truly be here with us. That as we study your word, it would come alive and that you would speak to us whatever it is that you're trying to say. Pray that it would not be my own agenda or our own thoughts or our own desires, but instead we would truly have a relationship with you, that we would know you for who you are. Pray that you would help me to simply get out of the way and that your word would speak. So we commit this time to you and we pray this in your name. Amen. So there's something especially ironic about the fact that I am going to have to be teaching about marriage tonight, being that I am single and have no marriage experience. So my goal for tonight is to, as best as I can, figure out what this passage is saying, because every, it's pretty obvious that my advice is probably not the best, but the Lord's advice is the best. And so we're going to try our best to see what this is really about. And as I said, we're continuing through the origin series about um, going through Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And what we saw a couple weeks ago was when God created humanity, he said, go fill the earth and subdue it. And it's often called the creation mandate. Go fill the earth and subdue it. And in saying that, he's saying, go out and create human civilization. Go out and create civilization. And in chapter two, we got to see that begin to start playing out. Where two weeks ago, we saw man's natural habitat within the Garden of Eden with productive work and, and everything being provided for by the Lord. There was, he was beginning to fill the earth and subdue the earth. He was beginning human civilization. Then this week, what we see tonight is first civilization's primary relationship. In order for human civilization to flourish, in order for human society um, to grow and to flourish and to be stable, the very basis of human civilization is marriage and family. 
That is the basis of it. The primary relationship that God goes into, he doesn't go into and say the primary relationship is the individual's relationship to the government. Nope, that's not it. It's not a fraternity. It's not a sorority. Instead, it's a family. That is the foundation of all society. And this is played out in a variety of different fields, both sociologically, economically, all kinds of different things. And I came across this uh, study that um, I wanted to like read it to you guys. Um, it was by Dr. Seth Kaplan, who I don't think he's a believer or anything, but he's a lecturer at John Hopkins um, University, and he's worked on UN reports and all kinds of different stuff. But in talking about family and in talking about uh, society as a whole, here's what he has to say. He says, a strong marriage provides basic family stability affecting a wide range of social outcomes as it imbues men and women with meaning and moral obligation. Marriage positively influences health, incomes, social mobility, poverty rates, inequality, happiness, crime rates, and the physical, emotional, and academic well-being of children. The unattached are at a greater risk of adopting destructive patterns and suffering from the ills of loneliness. Men are disproportionately affected. The health benefits of marriage for men are greater than those for women, though women realize gains too. Conversely, as W. Bradford Wilcox notes, when marriage is weak within a community, there are negative externalities that seem to flow from that. We know that crime is higher in communities with fewer married fathers. We know that parents are less involved in schools. We know the ability to support kids is lower. Boys are especially likely to have environmental problems and lower student achievement if they grow up in an unstable family environment. In other words, what Dr. Kaplan pointed out is that the foundation for society is the family. And where the family goes, so goes society and so goes civilization. And that's exactly what is said here. And what I find is interesting is that he also says that basically, not being married affects men more. And here it says, it's not good for a man to be alone. <laughs> and tonight, I'm going to speak specifically, primarily, to the young men here. Because I'm a guy, so it's easier for me first. <laughs> but also, because I think this passage is speaking specifically to us young men. And so, and also, I think that women are just naturally better at relationships than guys. <laughs> guys need to be told and explained how to have a relationship. Girls are just better at it. So <laughs> it needs to be spelled out for us. And I think men have just a natural misplaced self-confidence where we don't need the directions. <laughs> We don't need any help. We can figure it out on our own. But God specifically says, no, no, it's not good for you to be alone. Like, that's insane that that's what he starts with. This is man in the perfect environment. He has the perfect relationship with God. He's out there with fulfilling work. He has pets. And everything is perfect. And he says, nope, that's not good for man to be alone. <laughs> that's not good. It's not good for man to be alone. And so tonight, my goal hopefully is to talk about marriage and the points that I'm going to be going through is first the point of marriage, then the miracle of marriage, then the soil of marriage, and then the rib of marriage. And that's kind of the outline of where we're going. And hopefully we can 
talk through this together. So first, the point of marriage. If you look back at verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So this is the naming story. And Oftentimes when we picture this, those of us who have grown up in church, we think of Adam having like some hippopotamuses come by and saying, hmm, I'm going to call it a hippopotamus. And then after like a couple days, he was like, I'm so bored. It's a fly and then moves on. Like that's typically what we think is just calling it a title. It's not a title. Naming biblically is something exceedingly important. And it's something that often God does with his people. Later on in the book of Genesis, Abram, God calls him Abraham. Later on, Jacob, they call him Israel. There's naming that is exceedingly important. What it's talking about is their identity and their destiny and their um, who they are is, is what's being explained here. And so for Adam to be naming the animals, he's literally setting their identities, setting their direction, setting their trajectory. He's almost co-creating with God the animal kingdom. It's unbelievable. This is him functioning in, in ruling and reigning over creation. This is him functioning as an image bearer of God. This is him representing God to the world. And he's doing this to expand and subdue the earth, to expand God's kingdom, like we talked about before, a couple weeks ago. He's expanding God's kingdom. He's subduing the earth. He's glorifying the Lord. He's working for something bigger than himself. And I think it's really easy for us young men to be totally focused about ourselves, for us to be selfish. And the reality is, the more we live for ourselves, the more we're going against the way in which we were designed. We were designed to live for something bigger than ourselves. And Martin Luther King Jr. has this great quote where he says, if a man hasn't found something worth dying for, he hasn't found anything worth living for. In other words, we don't even begin to live until we have something bigger than ourselves. We don't even begin to live until we have something worth dying for. And that's how we were designed from the very beginning, is to live for something that's bigger than ourselves, something that's worth dying for, namely the glory of God, imaging Him, representing Him, glorifying Him. That's what we were designed to do from the very beginning. Then, in the middle of that, Him glorifying God through imaging Him and ruling and reigning and all of those things, in the middle of it, he realizes and God sees completely that he needs some reinforcements, <laughs> that he can't do it on his own. <laughs> and the reason why I say reinforcements is that when you look at the word helper, when it's describing women in verse 18, it says, I'll make a helper fit for him. And then also in verse 20, where it says, but for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. I want to go back to this in future teachings um, to talk about that a little more fully, but what the word helper there is, um, is other times in the passage or in the Bible, it talks about how God helps his people. That's how that word is used. And also it's how reinforcements come and help an army. 
So when God says, I'm going to create a helper fit for him, this is reinforcements. This is God coming and helping his people. This is something that the guy can't do it on his own, that he needs some help, and God creates woman as reinforcements. In order to be able to accomplish glorifying God and expanding his kingdom. So all of this gets, is underneath the point of marriage. What is the point of the very first marriage? What is the point of marriage in general? The point of marriage is God's glory. To image him, to have his name be made known, to expand his kingdom. The great lie of our culture is that marriage is primarily about personal happiness. If our marriages are primarily about personal happiness, as soon as we are unhappy, we will bounce out of our marriages. Instead, marriage is about God's glory, and that is what matters most. And oddly enough, just like what Jesus said, if you seek to save your life, you will lose it, but if you lose your life for my sake in the gospel, you will find it. When our marriages and all of our relationships and our entire lives are about God's glory, we tend to find our lives. And we actually do end up finding satisfaction and joy in following after him because we're, that's the way we were designed. And this perspective of having everything be about God's glory primarily doesn't start just at marriage, but obviously is there, hopefully, in every phase of our life, and it trickles down into, then, the dating relationship. I know, basically, all of us here are single, so how does this play out there? Having God's glory be our goal in relationships and in dating, that will affect how we date. Because if God's glory is our goal, then we won't date a non-Christian. That just doesn't make sense. That can't work. Or if God's glory is our goal, then we won't sleep together because that's ultimately not God's design. If God's glory is our goal, all the other things end up falling into place when God's glory is our goal. If we have lesser goals, things will still go wrong. Like if our, our goal in this relationship is just to not hurt the other person, you're going to end up hurting that person. <laughs> and you'll ultimately end up falling short of both. So shooting to the highest aim of God's glory everything else falls into place. Now, you might be thinking, okay, Stephen, I hear that, that that's the point of marriage, but it really sounds like you're leaving all of us single people, including yourself, outside of, like, glorifying God. <laughs> like, how, like, how does that work? If he created woman to go and together glorify God, okay, where does singleness fit into this? And that's where Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 comes. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 has this beautiful place where he dignifies the role and the position of marriage and of singleness. And how he dignifies singleness is by saying singleness is dignifying, singleness is a God-honoring place to be, singleness is a profitable place to be, singleness is a great place to be. And he says, in fact, I'm single and I wish everybody were like me because I can glorify God. And that's the filter that he has. Here, here's what he says in verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. 
And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. The unmarried or the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. In other words, singleness is a beautiful place to be because we can use it for God's glory. And that's the filter through which so much of the Bible looks, is that my life is not my own, it's about God's glory. So whether it's singleness, marriage, um, no matter what location, no matter what relationship status it is, all of it is ultimately about God's glory primarily. That's what matters. You might be saying, okay, Stephen, I hear you. That's the point of marriage is God's glory. The point of all of our lives is God's glory. And I also can see that the whole, it's not good for man to be alone. So like, that's, that's cool. But you know, Stephen, I've, I've tried to find my wife, but I can't even get a girlfriend. <laughs> and I get that. And what's beautiful is the next part talks about the miracle of marriage. In verse 21, it says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So here we see, Adam, the first man, sinless, in God's presence, perfect relationship with God. And what I had never really noticed until studying it this time was in verse 23, where it says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Those first three words, you don't say this at last without first experiencing a time of waiting. You don't say this at last if it was something that was right away. And so what has happened here is Adam, he was out there imaging God, glorifying God, doing his calling, all of those things, and he was waiting. God didn't bring woman right away. It's this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He had been waiting. He had been wondering. He had been hoping. He may have not known what God was going to do. And so he was waiting and didn't know what was going to happen. He had to wait until God put him in a deep sleep. And that word for deep sleep there, it is only used a handful of times in the Old Testament. And it was seven times, five out of the seven times, it is something that God gives. God gives this deep sleep. And when this deep sleep comes, there's some kind of vision, there's some kind of dream, there's something supernatural going on. There's a miracle happening when God brings this deep sleep. And in that deep sleep, just like throughout most of the rest of the times this word is used, God brings a miracle. God makes woman. And so what this means is, is often we can think, okay, I'm waiting for God to bring the right person into my life, or I'm waiting for God, and okay, maybe it's because I I need to get my walk with God right. If I get my walk with God right, then God will give me the, the person that I'm looking for. Adam had a perfect walk with God. He walked with God in the cool of the day, yet he still waited. 
oftentimes we think, okay, well maybe if I just deal with the sin in my life, if I just become holy enough, then God will bring the person in my, into my life. Adam was without sin. This was prior to sin entering the world. And yet God still had him wait. Oftentimes we can think that marriage is a gift granted to the mature. When the reality is, marriage is a gift given by grace. Marriage, every single marriage, is a miracle. It's not something that we've done to earn. It's not something that we've done to obtain. It's not something that we have done to accomplish. Instead, it is something that is given by God, by grace. It's not about our performance in order to be able to try and gain something from God or to try and get to a certain level. Instead, it's something that's truly given by God. And so if you're thinking, I've just been waiting, I don't know what's going on, it isn't something that you have to try and earn. It's instead a miracle that is given by grace. And the reality is, it took an act of God for Adam to get a girl. <laughs> Odds are it'll be true of us too. <laughs> it will be an act of God. And I, the best example I have of this is, is my brother and his wife, how they got together. And um, it was just an unbelievably random uh, series of events where they met each other at Old Navy and they crossed paths there, and then they crossed paths in Hawaii multiple times, then they crossed paths again at church over here, and like the Lord just caused all of these circumstances to come together for them to be able to meet each other, get to know each other, and they ended up together. And it's an, a very overt expression of, yeah, that was pretty miraculous that they ended up together. But while theirs might be overtly miraculous, every single marriage at its core is something miraculous, something that God gives, not because of something that we've done, but instead it's simply something by grace. And when we are given something by grace, this is another reason why I know that this is a gift given by grace, is what is Adam's response? This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. What is that? That's poetry, that's praise, that's worship. The response to a gift is worship. The response to a gift is praise. If it was something that he had earned, he wouldn't worship, he wouldn't praise, he wouldn't thank. Instead, it would be his wage. It would be his due. Instead, he responds with joy and thankfulness because it's a gift. It's a miracle. So, the point of marriage is God's glory. Every single marriage is ultimately a miracle, something given by God's grace. But then in marriage, how can marriage be cultivated and what's the soil in which marriage can grow, which is what the next couple verses are. So the soil of marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This verse, if you read it all together, comes out of nowhere to me. Literally, it's them all doing their thing. It's this beautiful story. And then the narrator, the author, inserts himself into verse 24 and says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And when I read that, it literally made no sense to me. Because at this time, sociologically, the woman would go to the man's house. And it was a patriarchal society. 
The loyalty, the strongest ties in this society would have been to the father and to the family. And the woman would leave their household and be connected to the man and the man's household. And that's where the loyalty would lie. And so for him to just jump in and say, therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, that just does not make, it did not make sense sociologically. And so I was like trying to read up like why, (coughs) why this could be. And I honestly couldn't find any good answers. And so I was just thinking and praying and trying to see what this could be. And here's, here's what I came to, and I think this is what it is. As I said, at this time, the relationship to father and mother, the patriarchal society, that would have been one of the strongest relationships. For him to forsake that would be forsaking something very precious, very dear, very valuable, very essential, something really important. He forsakes that in order to be able to be linked to his wife and then hold fast to her. And what I think this is saying is that the soil in which marriage is meant to grow and flourish is one of exclusive commitment. Exclusive commitment. So first, exclusive. Leaving your father and mother. Something that's really important. Something that's really um, powerful and meaningful for you. Leaving that and saying, nope, this is my exclusive priority. My wife is my exclusive priority. Nothing else, it comes close. Now she is my family. Not anybody else. She is my family. This is my primary responsibility. This is where I'm going to be. And even if it's difficult, even if it's something important to me, I'm willing to sacrifice that for her. There's an exclusivity of this, of this relationship where it's prioritized. It's the thing that matters more than anything else. And even though it might be painful, I'm willing to sacrifice in order to be able to have this be the primary, primary thing in my life. And ultimately, there, there can't be true closeness and intimacy without that exclusivity. Without that true exclusivity, without that true forsaking all others, as the old vows say, without having that, there can't be true closeness and true intimacy. And the sacrifice that comes from leaving things that are important, that is what we as young men are called to do. Living for something bigger than ourselves. Sacrificing, and all of us, that is what we are designed to do, to sacrifice ourselves in order to be able to have others as our priority, and especially the wife and the marriage relationship. And it's so easy, I think, also for men to not do that. To have other things take priority. To have other things be more important. And most of the time, the other things are really just ourselves. And the uh, example that I have of this is, while I was on a plane one time, I travel quite a bit for work, and so I was on a plane sitting there. I always get an aisle seat because I can stretch my legs out and I'm just too tall to be like hunched next to the window. So I try and get the aisle seat as much as possible. So I'm sitting on the aisle seat, there's two open seats next to me and I see people are all filing in or whatever and I'm just sitting there. And um, I see this like couple walk in and uh, they're young, probably like mid twenties and uh, they have matching white shoes, 
matching sweats, matching sweatshirts and uh, like tracksuit type things. And they're just like cool, sporty walking in matching. And I was just like, whoa, all right. <laughs> and so they come walking in and turns out they're the ones that are going to be sitting next to me. So I, I like stand up and like get out of the way and and they're like, you know, putting stuff in the overhead bins and everyone's all crowded in like the loading time of a plane, you know, so it's all kind of chaotic. And so you're just kind of like getting situated. And the way it worked out was uh, she was going to sit in the window. He was going to sit in the middle seat and I was going to sit on my aisle seat. And as it's happening, he goes, am I going to sit in the middle seat? And she goes, well, I, I, I guess like there was just people coming like all like, it was just like chaos and and he was like can I sit in the aisle instead and she was like sure so they switch and as they're switching she goes selfish <laughs> and they sit down and I was like oh my gosh what is happening so they sit down and he leans over and is like hey like did, did you really think that was like selfish and she was like oh no it's fine it's it's whatever and and then and then he goes well like if if you really want to have the window and i'm, I'm thinking he's going to say like we can we can switch and, and he's if you really want to have the window seat on the next flight we could get two seats separate from each other so we can both sit next to the window and i was like oh my gosh <laughs> That is unbelievable. And that, I thought, was the perfect example of exactly what we as guys tend to do. <laughs> we tend to be not sacrificing ourselves in exclusive commitment to our wives. Instead, we tend to think, oh, well, if we can both sit next to the window and we can sit separate from each other and stuff like that. But the soil in which marriage can grow is an exclusive commitment. And the next part piece is commitment, where it says, you shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Or the old King James is cleave. Leave and cleave, right? Hold fast to his wife. When I was in college, um, I, I took this class called Jesus Life and Ministry, and the professor, his name was Dr. Lundy, and he's just a sweetheart, like mid-50s, mid-60s, somewhere right around in there, and he's just a brilliant mind, but just totally kind. And as he was talking and teaching, I don't remember how he got to this, but he said something that, that haunts me, and I think is true. He said, there's something in the heart of a man that even in a good relationship with a godly woman, his heart is still restless. And it struck me. And I think that is why here the narrator says, hold fast to your wife. Deep in the heart of guys, I think there's this restlessness that can come about. And that's why he says, hold fast. There's a commitment. There's a promise that is made. There's 
a consistency that needs to take place in order for the marriage to be able to grow. It's the soil in which marriage can thrive, is exclusive commitment. And when both of those things are in place, then verse 25 can be true. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. That means totally vulnerable, totally exposed, knowing everything about the other, and yet totally loved, totally accepted, totally cared for. That's where marriage is meant to be, a place where we can be totally known, totally exposed, totally and completely known, and yet totally and completely and perfectly loved, so that way there is no shame. That is what marriage was designed to be, and that relationship is meant to mirror the relationship that God has with us. There's this beautiful quote by Tim Keller where he says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us from any difficulty life can throw at us. This is what we need more than anything else, to be totally known and totally loved. And that is exactly what God has for you and me, that he totally knows everything about you, every thought you've ever had, every action you've ever done, every behavior you've ever exhibited. He knows it, even when you've forgotten it, and yet he loves you to the very core. He sees you totally open, naked and exposed, and he says, I love you and there is no more shame for you. That is what it's like to be loved by God. And we see that in this passage in the rib of marriage. If you go back up to where it says that a deep sleep fell upon the man, and as he slept, he took one of his ribs. That word for rib there is only translated rib right here in this place. Everywhere else in the Bible, it is primarily translated as side, which means he didn't just take a single bone. He took a hunk of his side. And we know that because it says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He took the whole side out. He didn't just take a single bone. It was a hunk of his side that was taken out of him in order to be able to create his wife. And this is a foreshadowing of the second Adam. Jesus in the New Testament is talked about as the second Adam, the fulfillment of what Adam was meant to be. And when Jesus came to this earth, he died on the cross. And what happened on the cross? His side was pierced. And from his side, blood and water flowed. And there on the cross, that's where he purchased his bride. And that's where he said, you're mine. I love you. And you are my exclusive commitment. And I'm not leaving you or forsaking you to the very end, to the very death. And my side is going to be ripped in half in order to be able to prove and declare and show my love for you. And I know everything about you. And I'm not leaving. This is a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do on the cross where he was torn in half. This first wedding is a foreshadowing of the ultimate wedding, the greatest wedding where the second Adam was torn in half. And when Jesus came to this earth, he did go to a wedding one time that we have recorded. And there in John chapter two, Jesus goes to the wedding at Cana, right? He goes to the wedding at Cana, and there's the problem. There's no more wine. And Mary comes to him, and he says, hey, there's no more wine. And what does he say? My hour has not yet come. 
What is he thinking about in that moment? He's there at a wedding. He's at a wedding. It's beautiful, fun, happy. There's great things happening. It's a wedding. It's awesome. And they come to him and they say, they need more wine. He says, his hour has not yet come. What is the hour talking about? The hour of his death. The hour when he would die, when he would be torn in half. He's there thinking about that in the beautiful, happy, fun time of a wedding. Why is he thinking about that? He's thinking about that because he's doing what a lot of us do as single people at weddings. When we go to a wedding, we sit down and we look around. What are we really thinking about? Our own weddings. (laughs) With the far off look in our eyes, thinking about, oh, I would do the colors differently. (laughs) I wouldn't have chosen that music. We're thinking about our own weddings. Jesus, when he was at the wedding of Cana, he was thinking about his own wedding. The hour in which he was torn in half. The hour in which he was torn so that way his bride, his wife, could be fashioned and created and formed. What does it say? It says that he made, in, he turned, made the, into the woman right there in um, verse 22. He had taken from the man. He made it into one. That word made is to fashion. It's to build. Jesus on the cross fashioned and built and created you and me when he was torn in half. Where now you and me, we are his bride. And he will never leave us nor forsake us because he knows everything about you he knows everything about me and yet he still loves us and he says you are now my exclusive commitment i'm committed to you and that is the thing that as tim keller says can fortify us against every difficulty. It humbles us out of all of our self-righteousness and it breaks through every pretense where we no longer have to be spinning. We no longer have to be adjusting. We no longer have to be calculating. We no longer have to be formulating because God knows all of it. He already knows. And he's already declared his love. So my heart, again, for us tonight is that we would really know God's love for us and his exclusive commitment for us. Because if we don't know that first, we will look to marriage to try and fulfill us in a way that it can't. We will disregard marriage, even though that it's actually good. We will be insecure. We must know God's love for ourselves. And the way to know that is to see him as the second Adam that was torn in half so that way you and I could be built up, so that way you and I could be whole, so that way you and I could have no more shame, and instead we can be vulnerable and naked before him and unashamed, fully known and fully loved. When we know that, then, then our marriages, our lives, can have a foundation that's on a rock that will never move. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to have our lives on the foundation that will never move.
the rock of your love, the rock of your grace, the rock of your consistent, exclusive commitment to us. Even though it was costly, even though it was painful, even though it hurt, you stayed. I pray that you would help us to receive that love for ourselves, receive that grace for ourselves. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. And we pray this in your name. Amen.